Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Lower Decks edition. I am Michael, your host, and I'm in the studio with David Sabal. Hello. Hello, everybody. Okay, so today we're going to be delving into the latest episode of Star Trek Lower Decks titled In the Cradle of Vexalon. <laughs> I love the titles, dude. Some of the Star Trek titles, it's one of those things I love about Star Trek. Well, Lower Decks definitely thrives in the tropes of Star Trek. So yeah. because of that, they actually end up having some pretty cool titles to their episodes. So I will agree with you there for sure. So David, in this episode, we're going to explore the hilarious and chaotic consequences of promotions for our favorite lower deckers <laughs> as they encounter classic yes. Trek themes and motifs once again in an ever incestuous self-reverential episode of star trek oh yeah i mean this is where the show you know thrives as i had mentioned a few seconds ago in the referential in the tropes in those classic motifs yeah and it's but always it, wanted to turn it on its head yeah th that's where it works for me i know when people listen to our shows at times people say well michael you're complaining about these things well i'm not i'm complaining if it's not used in a smart and clever fashion, if it just dissolves into nothing but the self-referential, then yeah, I'm going to complain a bit. Say, well, what are you going to give us? Like, what is this really saying from a story perspective about our new characters here, our lower decks characters? And an episode like this is much like the second episode of this season so far. And it takes those funny moments, those things that we've all come to expect from lower decks and connect them to our our characters in a way that actually brings out needed character development yeah you know seeing the promotion chaos uh, you know the the ring world mayhem the crew of the cerritos facing what is that corazonia 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 yeah. corazonian i guess you can call it artificial intelligence yet again which is good not evil <laughs> which, yeah. is, which is so awesome that they played with the trope that they've been playing around with since season one about how all ais are evil here we get the trope again but this time it's the ai is actually really nice i was hoping that it did turn evil because <laughs> that's just a thing now in lower yeah decks. you feel it's, like it's going to happen you know you either go back and pull some of those evil AI from the little cannon box and repurpose it, or you create your own, which lower decks has done both so far, right? Yes. And it's four seasons. So I figured, all right, well, here we are third episode of season four. And why not jump right back into what you guys have been doing with the artificial intelligence. That's been an ongoing thread 
since the very first season. Yeah. So I was, I was kind of expecting that to happen. So when they introduced this environmental AI, essentially yeah, that is what it was. The world. Then I was like, okay, this is going to end bad. This is, <laughs> this is going to be another one of those evil artificial intelligence. But in fact, as you said, David, it ended up being something that was benevolent. Yes. And it's like hilarious because we were coming from off of a episode where the nice, cute thing is actually the most dangerous, you know, in the last episode where we read into the very lovable moopsie moopsie. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> the, the innocent looking thing turns out to be the most dangerous thing. And here we all expected the computer to be the most dangerous thing. No, no. It's just the, the, the sheer incompetence that surrounds the machine because the machine makes life so much easier for everybody. And like to kick things off, with Captain Freeman messing things up because she 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 used to be a specialist in archaic technologies. <laughs> and I was like going, oh no, yeah, this is gonna this is not gonna bode well. And I I actually thought the AI was gonna turn evil, but in actuality, the whole the the whole idea was these people are so reliant on technology, they don't know how to f- how to make it work in the end. Like if you, if the fact that their captain Freeman could not figure out how to fix this computer and she had to go through software reboots, she had to do, (laughs) she had to do shutdown sequences. It was really, it's kind of like that joke nowadays of like the elderly looking at a computer and trying to figure it oh, out. Oh, come on. Captain Freeman is an elderly. Josh. Well, you know, she, she is, she, she may be the, she may be, you know, the captain of the Cerritos, but she's part of the elderly and she acted like it. Yeah. For, from a writing standpoint, I liked what they do with their character because yeah. it, it was, she was essentially just the catalyst to create the chaos, to create the chaos because ultimately the episode was framed by this idea, which is very common in Star Trek is the idea of teamwork yes, and, and leadership and working together and having faith and trust in your fellow Starfleet officers, which is an idea that they used Boimler to push forward yes. because here you have the first official away mission that Boimler is in charge of. He has his own team and you get to see junior grade Lieutenant junior grade Brad Boimler struggle to lead his first away team, which ultimately leads to character growth because he realizes that he can't micromanage he can't micromanage and he also has to trust them, has to trust them. And that's yes. a part of being a leader. When he said that he was hesitant on putting people's lives in jeopardy to put their lives in danger. That's listen, that's a, I think most people can, can rally behind that idea. No one wants to oh, put yeah. someone in danger. However, that comes with the territory of being a leader. You have to be willing to make those decisions at times. We've seen all of our captains at some point throughout Star Trek's 60 plus years, almost 60 plus years of television shows and movies where they do in fact have to put people that they've become very close to in harm's way because that comes with the territory. And that really actually defines leadership in many 
ways. We have talked about Janeway in depth. We've talked about Picard in depth, but even someone that we don't talk about as often like Cisco, I mean, he learned those types of lessons because he was dealing with actual wartime events. Exactly. So it builds character being a leader, learning how to learning how to deal with the things that you can control and the things that you can't control. control. And that's really what the episode was about at its core. It was about this idea of letting go of what you can't control and accepting what you can and putting that faith in your crew, in your crew. And that's why I thought the use of Talyn was genius in this one, because like, it wasn't even to antagonize Boimler. It was just to actually show Boimler, this is the harsh truth of being a leader. This is the logical things that happens with a leadership. And when you put someone like Boimler in that scenario, of course he's going to actually flounder. Of course he's going to do that. But I thought it was also really genius with Captain Freeman because here's your veteran who makes a mistake because she doesn't want to call down her engineer right away because she thinks she can do it herself instead of what trusting her crew. And, and I like the, I like the parallel narrative. They set they, they essentially put right there where it's like, it is about it's, it's more than just being this carefree. We're going to win the day type of captain in order to be a true leader, you have to understand that you have to have trust in the people that are underneath you too. Which is kind of funny because yes, that's definitely what the entire episode was about. But then they sow those seeds of, of, uh, <laughs> con- of contradictory yes. ideas because at the end you find out you can't really trust your You're commanding officers commanding because officer. they're fucking with you. Yeah, because, the, because of the whole hazing storyline with the rest of the crew was another parallel. Yeah, but all of it, the, was, it was a comedic parallel, but it, it absolutely parallel. is a parallel. Yeah. Yeah. I like this episode. I thought it was a smart way to have fun while also creating those lessons for our characters. Those classic Star Trek lessons that for some reason never gets tired. You don't grow tired of those stories. Maybe if you had a bunch of shitty writers writing things, it'd all feel the same. But when you have someone like Mike McMahon, who absolutely, you know, even though I don't agree with all of his writing in Lower Decks, and I feel like he, he kind of pushes the envelope a little too much at times, you can't disagree that he understands Star Trek. Oh, absolutely. He, he knows the tropes. You couldn't do a show like this if you didn't fully understand Star Trek and all of its little intricates intricate layers and yeah. everything that it represents and the different things they have done in different shows. And how many times do I always say that if you write Star Trek, you better not just have watched Star Trek, the next generation and a handful of other episodes. Well, here you have Mike McMahon who literally is the embodiment of how I say writers of IPs should be. They should understand all facets all of the facets. IP. Yeah. All facets. And here, Mike McMahon is a man who literally has watched every single episode of Star Trek. And it his is writing obvious. Shows, yeah. It's, his writing shows it because like, especially with some of the jokes he does, they're very subtle in this episode, but they hit the target. Like say, for example, one of my favorite, jokes that he does is toward the very end when Boimler gets resuscitated back to life and you hear ransom in the background go, yep, nothing like being getting your first comeback from death 
experience as an officer of, of Starfleet. And I'm like going, yeah, that is a trope of Starfleet is like they throw people into the into the fire and yeah, they'll come back because, you know, they're they're officers and somehow some way the doctor will find something to bring them back to life. They don't know what and they'll never explain how they brought them back. Yeah, but they'll come back. Now, David, you mentioned Boimler's death. There are things, and this is why I also like this episode, because I like things that are stretched out, branched out through numerous episodes, ideas, and I'm not talking necessarily myth arcs, but just story aspects, things that were introduced that you can always hearken back to. And they went way back with the idea of the Black Mountain, <laughs> which if you yes. remember, Shax explained this black mountain, the black mountain, which is what was seen in the background when Boimler went to this weird place during his alleged death. Yes. And Shax explained that it's a spiritual battleground where the soul went after death. And there they must fight three faceless apparitions of their father, which we didn't see all that. We didn't but see we all that. We did see the black mountain in the background. We also. Are you going to mention it? Saw the koala. Again. Yes. And that's another, I don't want to call it a deep cut, but it's going to be eventually when it comes to lower decks, because you had the koala, which has now been somewhat fleshed out as this godlike entity. Yes. That is similar in appearance to the earth marsupial, the koala, obviously. Yes. And the being was witnessed by several members of the crew of USS Cerritos all the way back, or I should say starting all the way back in the very first season. And it's mostly in moments of, of ascension yeah, of, or death or reversible brain death is how it's explained in the Star Trek wiki here. I think one of the most favorite moment, moments of ours mm -hmm. is the one where the guy ascends yeah, that's, with Tendi. To this day, that's one of my favorite episodes. And the, the It's the scene that had me and you laughing out loud <laughs> because it's like he's ascending and all of a sudden it's just this random picture of a koala. And he's <laughs> having like, isn't he like an excruciating pain? And he's an excruciating pain. <laughs> and uh, it was the funniest thing ever. And then like, I didn't realize this till this actually came out. The koala has made multiple appearances throughout yeah. Lower Decks. Yeah, it was in the episode Moist Vessel. Yeah. First, first contact. Mining the Mines Mines, which was a good episode. Yes. And then now in the Cradle of Exelon. And I love when... This is one of the things that Mike McMahon's been really good at if you are a fan of his from Rick and Morty. He's able to take little things like little appearances of little characters and then stretch them out mm -hmm. among seasons. And then you're like going, holy crap, that, that, that came back. I forgot about that. And that's how I feel about the koala. It's like now I'm, now I'm looking at the koala expecting it to be some kind of payoff because that's what he does. And especially like with the Black Mountain and everything. And the fact that Boimler, this is like his third time i think he's died and come back <laughs> mm -hmm. and like well actually no this is his second time he has so there i'm expecting a third has he time died? i don't remember yeah because I... remember he died the one time and he met george takai yeah oh yeah i need to rewatch <laughs> lower decks because it's the only star trek series i have not attempted to rewatch yet i probably should go through a, a yeah the episode 
first three seasons. The episode where he goes crazy and then, you know, dies of a heat death and then goes to the farm. Yeah. Where. Yeah. I re- we, yeah. I remember yeah, we're Captain Kirk and it's actually owned by Sulu now. <laughs> but like when he goes to there. So that is the first time that I believe Boimler died. And now this is the second time. And now it makes me think, I think Boimler's going to die another time. And we're going to have another oh. moment where it's like, he's coming closer and closer to death, which actually the one thing I wrote here, I wrote in my notes is like, I wonder if like, this is going to be a thing of Boimler's where Boimler is the one character I noticed he will become the koala. Yeah. Where <laughs> I'm like, like he keeps going, getting into these scenarios that he gets very, 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 very close to death. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he'll cross that threshold. And then you'll have these moments like where he shows up in the random room with the koala and then outside the, looks out the side the window and sees the black mountain. And I'm wondering if that is part of his narrative because like he's the, um, in a lot of ways, in a comedic context, he is the, every Star Trek show has their philosophical character. Yeah. Now, Boimler himself is far from philosophical, but if you look at many of the scenarios, let's strip away the comedy from it. Many of the scenarios they throw him in are actually steeped in philosophical aspects. Oh, yeah. Is the, the transporter accident. Yes. The, the, the multiple death experiences, there are notes of philosophical avenues that you can easily use to explain some of his, his stories and the things that uh, Mike McMahon is working through with this character. Now, I'm not saying it's overly deep. In a show like this, you can't get overly deep. However, once again, pointing to Mike McMahon's ability, ability to understand Star Trek but then dress it in a, a comedic, you know, aesthetic, aesthetic, this is what you get, but there's still those much needed moments like those aspects of philosophy. When you have certain characters that are utilized to flesh out those ideas, right? Well, especially like when you take a look at Boimler and himself and on top of that, even when he, we do the crossover, who is the main focus of the accident or the, the, yeah, the event that causes the episode or action to happen, it's Boimler. Boimler is the one who gets sent back into time and meets the, meets the strange new world's crew. Okay. And I'm like going, we've always stated that Mariner is the focus. Mariner is that thorough line, but Boimler, Boimler's story is getting very interesting with all of the events that are happening around him. Yeah. I think what they do with this character is interesting. Mariner is definitely, as you said, she's the, she's the thread. She's She's the thread. She's for the most part, the overt aspect of the show's narrative. Yeah. And she should be, you need to have that singular character voice that keeps everything consistent. And then obviously once you have that consistency, you can work on, on the outer areas, which are our other characters and that's something that they actually did in this episode. I would say Boimler was more or less the focus, but you also had Mariner, Tendi, and Rutherford dealing with similar things. Just yes. like Boimler is is having to figure out how to be a lieutenant junior grade, you also have the other three reflecting on life after their promotions and yes. ex- 
And in doing so, they are exploring this anomaly storage room, which opens up a whole other <laughs> box, a Pandora's box of fuckery that is used to, you know, have some fun when it comes to Star Trek references. And one such thing, actually, there's two big things. There is the Betazoid gift box, which is always, always creeped me out. Oh, yeah. It's one of the creepiest things I mean, the cartoon does not make it nearly as creepy as it actually was in the in next generation. Yeah. If people are not familiar with this aspect or you just don't remember, it was, I don't have the exact episode in front of me, but it, I think it was the first season where counselor uh, Deanna Troy received a box, the Betazoid gift box as a wedding gift. If you remember, she was engaged at one point. Yes. And she had been bonded with this person and the box was given to her as a present. They really didn't go anywhere else with it. They didn't overly explain what it was. But man, was it creepy? It, oh, dude, it, it was, was very creepy. Very creepy. And it's non-sentient too. It's just like something that relays a message, right? Yes. If I remember correctly. Yeah. It wasn't actually like an AI. It just relayed messages and mm -hmm. i'm like well that's kind of strange unless it's just 100 tradition which i'm assuming it's just betazoid tradition because in this day and age do you really need a gift box to relay a message in the world of star trek when you have <laughs> ways to communicate <laughs> it, 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 it seems over the top but it's when next generation was still trying to figure itself out yes because they they were trying to add elements to make the beta z different because besides the fact that the Beta Z could actually uh, communicate telepathically, they had to really make them different from all the other humanoid races. Kind of build out their culture. Build a bit. out their culture a little bit. Yeah. And the whole point about that gift box was to kind of kind of show them as a very opulent race, like over the top. And it, and it makes sense when you look at their their entire race. I mean, come on, their whole wedding their whole wedding uh, tradition is to be naked. <laughs> Listen, I can get behind that. And, and yes, as I'm sure as we long could. as I could wear clothing, but all the ladies, you, all better, the ladies? you better strip. No, that's Ferengi. That's a Ferengi wedding. Oh, well then I, you know what? I'm, I'm, I should go to Ferenginar then. Ferenginar. Yeah. But that's the whole point. I'm about ashamed the, of my own body. So please don't make that, me strip. That was the thing about the Bezoi gift box that I loved. And here, Lower decks with their humor, they they take something that it is something innocuous in Star Trek that we don't think about as funny. Just like you said, I mean, originally it's a very creepy idea that this face is just there and it gives you relays a message. It's so weird. And then poof gives you the gifts that are inside the box. Yeah. But here it, the this bit this specific Betazoid gift box is has a message, but it's all like crude, you know, rude humor that's in the gift box, which made me crack up every time it was like cussing out at Rutherford. Yeah, it was good. So the episode we were talking about where the gift box was introduced, it was actually the 11th episode of the first season. So I was correct with it being a part of the first season. Yeah, see, that's when the next generation was still trying to find itself. Yeah. So you're going to find some of the weirdest aspects of TNG in the first season. 
that's where a lot of the weird, like, what the fuck were you guys doing? Oh, and you get the weirdest aliens, too, because remember Captain Picard dressed up as a, uh, had that weird headdress and beads episode, <laughs> and he had to talk to, like, this worm species or something. Uh, oh, you're talking about the the conspiracy. Yes. 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 Those little, like, parasites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was bizarre. That was bizarre. So the other thing that they utilized in this episode as a piece of comedy was the chula. Is that what it was called? Yes. The chula, which was a game played by the Wadi race. And it was from Voyager. I saw a lot of people happy that they were roasting that because they said it was one of the worst episodes of D Space Nine that they introduced this idea in. And I don't remember it being shitty. I remember it being kind of interesting because it was a puzzle, right? Wasn't it like a, almost like an Alice in Wonderland adventure? Like you'd go in and everything's like metaphor and symbolism. Yeah, because it's the Wadi and that's how the Wadi communicate. Yeah. Is through like puzzles and, and riddles and stuff like that and wordplay. But basically like I, I, I was really surprised about that too because the Chula game, everyone like kind of roasted it as Star Trek fans, but in all honesty, it is a very elaborate yeah, I re- idea. I remember it being pr- pretty interesting. Yeah. It was, again, I believe it was, <laughs> I, I believe it was early on in Deep Space Nine's run as well. Yeah, first season. So these are moments, the two things they're picking on right now are from the first seasons of these of these shows where the show is still trying to, or to actually during itself. a time when the shows were still trying to find themselves. Cause debatably TNG didn't really find itself until the second half of season three. Yes. Uh, and then deep space nine, you could say the same thing is when it really found its direction and its own unique voice. Yeah. And th- that's because, and it's also during those times when those shows, any of the star Trek shows, now that I think about it, earlier seasons are used very experimentally. Where you go, okay, let's try this. And let's let's bring in this concept and see if it sticks. And I like it. I like that now we have a show, like in Lower Decks, that can take a look at those past concepts that didn't work and basically bring it back front and say, hey, don't forget, you, we this is part of the universe now because it was created. <laughs> and we have to accept that, yeah, there's somewhere out there People in the universe love Chula (laughs) and and it's much like I always thought of the Chula game when I first saw it. I thought it was was something that they wanted to do something different, like uh, introduce something besides the 3D chess where the 3D chess thing in Star Trek is infamous and it it was introduced in Star Trek. And it felt like when they introduced Chula, especially when you have Quark's bar and stuff like that, dealing with games, you have this opportunity to actually introduce interesting concepts to games. And I could imagine one of the writers in the room basically going, I got this fantastic idea, explaining it. And then the showrunner goes, brilliant, let's go for it. Yeah. The last bit here before we close out, were they trying to imply that there's more to Ransom than meets the eye when he is there analyzing art and he <laughs> seems to understand and grasp the idea of art interpretation, the, the choice of words, 
are they trying to finally break through that superficial cast that they've put that character in? The, I the, think maybe. Maybe justify, like, yes, this guy is a little bit of a douche, but there's a reason why he's a Starfleet officer. But also it goes into the line. It, it, it's one of those things that I really enjoyed. And one of the jokes I did write down was the fact that when we go to the 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 world of, uh, how do you, I forgot how you pronounce it. It's, um, Talking about the world. Cor- Cor- uh, Corazona? Cor- Cor- yeah. Corazona. Yeah. And we meet the people there. They're very like artsy, douchey people. Yeah. And then suddenly Ransom's like, like one of them. Yeah. And I'm like going. But he's also like, uh, like belittling their work. Belittling their work. <laughs> and I'm like going. They could, I, I'm wondering, and this goes into also why I like the writing in Lower Decks. They leave these little things in there that make you start second guessing. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, is there an importance of that? There I has think, to be. I do think they're trying to chip away the the superficial outer shell of, of Ransom. Ransom. Oh, yeah. And, and show a little bit more depth to the character. Well, you got Jerry O'Connell playing him. You got to use him. Yeah. He's <laughs> yeah. so good. Also, to Lynn is someone we haven't really spoke about very much. They had brought her into the ongoing cast. I want to say at the ending of last season, when she made her, was it her? Uh, yeah, she First was, appearance. she was stationed on a Vulcan ship, yeah. right? Yes. And then she became part of the lower decks crew. Dude, I like her character a lot. She adds something to the show. Oh yeah. It's something we've been missing. We we need a Vulcan in, in all of our Star Trek shows. We need that one singular logical character. It's just part of the genetics of Star Trek at this it point. Is. It's part of the DNA of Trek. And bringing her in, I felt has been since even the the start. We haven't had a chance to talk about her yet, but even with the start of this epi- of the start of this season with episode 1, she has been used appropriately throughout the the first three episodes so far. But more importantly, the way she was used in this episode, using, you know, logic, she was able to, and through logic, also the blunt delivery. Yes. And the honest delivery that she had, I should say, the way she delivered that information to Boimler actually worked to get him off his ass, you know, to give him the confidence and knowing who Vulcans are and how they don't lie, they can't lie. They don't hide behind, you know, a mask of like polite etiquette. They just speak. So to have a character like that say those types of things to Boimler, it was great character motivation. Oh, absolutely. That was smart. That's why I liked, as I said earlier, I liked the pairing of Talyn with Boimler because Talyn is the type of character that will pair well and get those moments we need out of Boimler. Because Boimler is such an anxious character, giving him, giving that type of character who is, uh, who is, who is just obsessed with being anxious and paranoid. And then you pair him up with a character who is bluntly speaks the truth. Yeah. He kind of suffers from anxiety, right? Anxiety. Boimler, yes. That's, yeah. that's why. That, but like when you have a character like that paired up with, with Talyn. Mm-hmm. That is a fantastic thing. The the one thing I really like about Talyn too is like the fact that she is the epitome of logic for on the USS Cerritos. But if you remember her origin, she got kicked out of the Vulcan Academy <laughs> because she was too radical. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and I'm like going, 
yeah, this is the type of Vulcan we need in lower decks. Yeah. All right, David, briefly, because we have to end. Just give me your RMD score. My RMD score for this one, I'm giving this a solid 85. I thought the 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 jokes did land really well in this episode. I liked the past episode a bit more, but you know, you cannot defeat the joke of Moopsie. Yeah, that was good. I do <laughs> that agree. That was really freaking cool. But here, this was a good follow-up episode. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, this did a little bit more character-wise than the last episode. Yeah, because we, we got to on see Boimler a bit more. Boimler, mm-hmm. and you start planting those seeds. I wonder if, like, the koala will make another appearance this season, but that means that Boimler's going to die again. <laughs> or someone. Someone will die. Okay, Dave. Well, I'll... It looks like I'm giving you uh, blah, 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 blah. looks like I'm going to be giving it the higher score this time, which is kind of rare for lower decks. I gave it an 87%. I thought it was a good installment of lower decks. It was the type of balance between humor and relevance that I want in my star Trek. Well, at least lower decks because I, I, the reason why I get frustrated when it just leans too much into comedy is because I know that Mike McMahon can write serious yes. Star Trek. So I get frustrated. And I know that the show is supposed to be just comedy. But if you have the ability to do both, then I want him to do both. And that's why episodes like the last one and this one are more or less my, my I don't want to say my favorite episodes, but things that I, I prefer. They're your jam. When, yeah, when it comes to Lower Decks. All right, so in 87 and 85, that brings us to a studio score of 86%, which is not that bad. Not that bad. All right, that brings us to the end of our discussion. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain. It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.